0: Hello, and welcome to the OPG Inspire podcast. My name is Robert Roach, your host in the wonderful world of leading with abundance and organizational development. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this podcast. And if you find it insightful, please leave a review online or share it around with some of your friends. Today, I sat down with Laura Freebairn-Smith, co-founder and partner at Organizational Performance Group. As a thought leader in abundance leadership and the cultural power of organizations, Laura is able to provide elegant insights into socio-political issues like gender and income inequality. And given our political climate and the discussions happening online, I wanted to explore some of these areas in an interview. She will also be a keynote speaker at the Women in Strategy Summit on February 28th in New York City. So if you're inspired to hear more from Laura after this interview, be sure to search Women in Strategy Summit online. With that, my interview with Laura Freebairn-Smith. We're live. Laura, welcome back to OPG Inspire. How's it been going over the last couple months?
1: It's been very good. It's nice to be back. And we've been busy at OPG. And I'm delighted to be back to talk about some more management leadership
0: issues. That's awesome. So uh, before we get going, uh, just for a refresher, could you quickly give us a little information about your background and what brought you to be partner of one of the top Boutique consulting firms in the United States.
1: Be delighted to. So, my background includes a series of w- work and educational opportunities, all leading to a deep curiosity about how organizations are run and helping them run better. So, my background includes a BA from Berkeley in philosophy and political science, an MBA from Yale and a Ph.D. from Saybrook University in organizational systems, so that's my academic training. My hands-on experience ranges from four years in a refugee camp on the Thai-Cambodian border to being the director of organizational development for Yale and now a partner at OPG. So those combined, the experiences and the education really have stirred my curiosity and fed my mind about how we can make organizations better. Since we spend so much of our life in them, I think it makes sense to study them deeply and see if we can make them the transformative vehicles they can be.
0: Um, So the reason that I brought you in here today is that I see you as a thought leader in many respects of leadership and many respects of how to run companies well, um, and especially how to run companies well when there's a lot of issues happening in the political realm just basically in what's happening right now in the United States. And uh, we've been seeing a lot of stories and opinions in the media about disparities and gender equality in the workplace. We have a lot of heated exchanges, uh, things about hiring bias, the pay gap, and larger discussions about whether capitalism is uh, naturally producing these kind of inequalities. So if we were to begin this conversation with a clean slate, where would you start?
1: So let me just make sure I've got the question right. So when you say, if we began the conversation with a clean slate, are you asking if we were creating organizations from scratch and our political models from scratch?
0: Mm, that's a great question. I think actually it'd be coming from a lot of these conversations we see in the media are very heated. And I think, you know, people are wondering how they can have a conversation about this. How do we have this conversation in such a way that we're able to avoid the problems that we're running into in the mainstream media of of immediately starting from a place of conflict Mm -hmm. rather of looking for a resolution.
1: Right. Okay. Uh, So the question that you asked about gender equity and I think just basically gender relationships in the workplace and how we get from this contentious place that we're in to a more fruitful, productive dialogue and I would offer a fruitful and productive system. So, one of the things we want to focus on also is solutions. So, there's dialogue and there are solutions. So, let me unpack this a little bit. And if we had hours for the conversation, we might go way back in time to when human beings first started forming in groups and over the trajectory of human history, what has created both hierarchy, male dominance, um, and other built in assumptions about how men and women should relate. And so I want to just give a tip of the hat to that work of so many anthropologists, sociologists, and others um, that maps that. And I encourage the listeners to go and read things like um, Elaine Pagel's The Gnostic Gospels and other works of that ilk that, that map it so we can understand history. We all got here together. And so we need to understand what bargains we made with each other along the way that created a system that has such... Uh, difficult inequities between the two genders. The other thing I want to say, as we eventually talk about the current situation, is just the last 50 years of transformative change. And we are having a public and private dialogue about gender inequity in a way that could not have happened without the last 50, 60, 100 years of work that both men and women have done to bring us to a place of much greater gender parity in the United States Than we would ever have had. So you look at people like Gloria Steinem, other feminists, um, the uh, Susan B. Anthony who helped get the vote, uh, men who stood by them to do that. So I want to acknowledge that that is worth reading about and understanding deeply. So to me, we're at an an inflection point in a conversation as two genders as they are currently divided, and I know that's a bifurcated system, and there's some fluidity across that line. But if we're just using those older terms, male, female, men, women, we are at a deep inflection point where finally there is a public conversation about behind-the-door harassment and other forms of, I'm going to say, oppression for lack of something else. Now, here's one of the key things that one of my mentors mentioned the other day in a conversation, David Berg, who I also recommend his work. Um, It has not been enough over the last 50 years, to say to women, well, why don't you stand up for yourself? Why don't you go say something to the men? We know from research on what it takes for oppressed groups to be able to have a change and not be oppressed, that they actually need the people in power to speak to the people in power. So what is finally happening is that men are talking to men, and they are saying, this is not okay, and I don't want to be a party to it. And we saw that in the civil rights movement when whites started standing next to blacks in the marches. It is critically important that men be part of this. And that doesn't mean that women can't make change on their own, but there is a tipping point that happens when those in power speak to those in power and say, no, no more. And when women as a whole have this incredible bravery, when one or two women start to go out into public and say, I will no longer be shamed or told that it was somehow my fault, and other women line up. Now, one of the critical things that allowed that to happen was social media. So if a woman stood up for herself 40 years ago, how was she going to get a visible mass of other women supporting her? And this is one of the great gifts of social media. It has its downside, but it's, it's an exquisite tool for having an instantaneous almost survey of, to how many people does this matter? Is this happening? and the Me Too movement reflected that. So so that's one reaction. I do wanna say, and I wanna talk about organizations and how they can manage and lead in a moment, but I, I wanna talk about shame, and I wanna talk about how we are navigating this moment of dialogue. As a, as a mother of a son, I get deeply worried when we see men as a whole bashed. I, I wanna encourage women not to go to the place that men have done to women. Let us take a higher ground, and let us find Uh, a way to have a dialogue of what I would call truth and reconciliation, similar to what South Africa did after years of horrific apartheid and aggression against blacks. Let us have a dialogue and process the emotions, process the pain, and come out the other side together with an agreement about what both men and women can do to not have it repeat and to find a place of forgiveness and to help men find their way to navigate a new way of interacting with women. I'm in no way saying that those have, who have raped or harassed or abused women in some significant way shouldn't be held accountable, but let's use restorative justice techniques. Let's use dialogue. Let's use truth and reconciliation and move to a higher ground and not just alienate and stereotype and bash an entire gender. I So that's that's... More a broad humanistic response to your question, and I know we can talk about organizations mm-hmm. next. So let me stop. And, the, there. and these
0: are really powerful concepts: truth and reconciliation, restorative justice, having that conversation on equal ground, and recognizing, and actually listening to the other side of your conver- of the conversation. Um, now. Often, you know, when these, you know, we're going back to organizations, when these leaders, you know, are seeing that there's these major issues, hot button issues happening in the media, people are bringing it up, people are coming to them saying, you have to deal with this. And uh, we'll usually see some sort of policy change. Uh, You know, the leader will say, well, okay, we're going to make this change in policy and that will fix the problem. Um, Why does that work? And why or why not?
1: Okay. So that's. So now I want to go to the space where we talk a little bit about capitalism versus other models of political organizing. And I want to talk about systems change and then what leaders can do in the microcosm of their own organization. So I I want to be very transparent here. I'm not a fan of unbridled, market-driven capitalism. I don't think it works. I think it comes from an older paradigm about um, hierarchy and Let me get as many resources as I can, and it doesn't fundamentally work. I think modified capitalism, a kind of uh, with a little bit of socialism thrown in, I'm not a political theorist, so I want to be careful that I don't overstate my credentials here, but to me, just as a layperson, as a citizen, when I look at countries like Sweden and Norway and others, those to me personally feel appealing, that we have a group sensibility, that it is okay to not have uh, huge amounts of money, that I have enough to live on, I have a little bit more than that, so I'm a little more comfortable than just enough to live on, but a deep sense of sharing and caring. Um, So I wanna be clear about my politics to the listeners. I I definitely lean towards that side. Um, That said, I think that what we keep doing, at least in the United States, is we keep throwing Band-Aids on the system. We put these patches, these laws get layered on, these policies get layered on. And what I would hope at some point in this country is we really step back and say, look, we created a system now 250, 260 years ago, and maybe we need to rethink some of the underlying ways it works. And those would be things about what we consider a right, and there's some things there that we don't, we don't consider healthcare a right, Uh, We don't consider the environment having its own rights. And there's some things that we have grown out of. We've gotten smarter than 250 years ago. We know more. And our system was built with people who didn't know as much as we do. And I would love to see this country take a step back in some way and say, what are the fundamental drivers of our system and do we want to tweak those instead of layering on policies to adapt to it? Mm -hmm. So that's, that's at the political system level, and that's a personal view. And again, I'm not an academician in this domain, so I'm sure... There are theorists who would have a lot to say about whether I'm on target or not. But I do know a lot about organizations, and I know a lot about leading. So let me say some things there. I believe that in the current system we have, the organizations serve as a primary cultural driver. And partially because right now our government system is not working well. It will work well again in the future. I'm an optimist, and it has worked well in the past. And hopefully, if we make some of those systemic changes to our government, it will work even better in the future. I have to be an optimist in that regard. In the meantime, organizations, for-profit, nonprofit, are driving culture and they're driving people's daily experience of reality. So, what I want to encourage leaders to do is to think about their organizations as microcosms of what is possible. And instead of also patching it, to, putting policies, patching them one over the other or doing things like saying, well, let's just look at compensation. That's really, if we solve compensation, then we've got gender equity. I would encourage them to tackle this in multiple levels and to think about the same idea that I mentioned before about restorative justice, about having truth and reconciliation conversations. Be brave, be fearless in the face of emotion, go there. Allow people to have the conversation, not willy-nilly, not unstructured, not in a way that's damaging, facilitated, carefully done, but people need to process the feelings they've had. that That's data. We do also need to look at compensation. We need to be transparent to some extent, and you can do that artfully. It doesn't have to be ma- complete transparency where people can't handle that much data yet. We're not sophisticated enough yet. But you can educate your staff to make them astute organizational world citizens so they start to understand why there are some pay differentials, but it shouldn't be by gender. It should be by how much experience people bring, how much risk they're carrying for the organization. So, for example, in compensation, what a lot of lay people don't know is a lot of compensation reflects risk. And many younger people or lay people don't understand that the more risk a person holds for an organization, the more they get paid, right? It should reflect their experience. It should reflect how much revenue they're generating. It should never be based on gender, okay? And, And to this day... Sometimes you'll hear a conversation where people say, Well, do they have a family they're supporting or not? That's not the question you should be asking. Now, as a CEO, what I hope you're asking is Is this a livable wage? Forget what the government dictates. Ask yourself Could you live on this? Whether you are single or with parents or whatever, I mean, or with children. Can you live on it? So, what I want to encourage the leaders to do here is say, how do we process the gender issues and we become a place where we have deep, meaningful dialogue and we transform not only our policies but our understanding of how we
0: work together? Mm. So that transformative conversation, where does mission and vision come into that conversation? Let's say I'm starting a new company, and I want to you know I want to approach these issues with a really, really healthy and uh, productive, uh, uh, methodology from the get go
1: mm-hmm.
0: how do I incorporate my mission and my vision into that?
1: So the first thing I would ask a leader is where does equity in the largest sense so it could be gender, income equality and others where does it show up in your mission? So the first question I would have for you is, is take a deep look at the mission and are you balancing you know, the, the classic three P's people, planet and profit and if not why not? If you have control of an organization, you're in charge, you have this incredible opportunity to be a social leader. It's extraordinary to me. Um, I think many leaders are coming to that and realizing what they create inside their organizations actually creates social change. So my first question would be, so where is it in the mission? And if it's not there, let's talk about it. And that is a very complicated conversation with different people different leaders every leader has their own internal structure and paradigm and i'll give you just a a concrete example so let's say that you're the ceo of a company and you grew up in a blue-collar family that was maybe on the edge of poverty sometimes we know from psychological theory and sociological theory that people who make that transition they're the first generation to go from blue collar or working class into middle or upper middle or upper class their relationship to money is different than those who come from a long line of, of wealthy parents and grandparents. They tend to have more anxiety about money. They are trying to build wealth for their own family and for the generations to come. And so sometimes there's an overcompensation and there is a fear of, um, I'm not going to say a fear of sharing because that's not true, but there is There's a different relationship to it in keeping it. Now, the people who come from very wealthy families also can can have a lack of sharing or fear around money, but it manifests differently. So one of the things leaders need to do is say, what's my relationship to money? What's my relationship to wealth? How much is enough? And at what point do I say, I have more than I need, which is in our household, the rule for whether we're rich or not is that we have more than we need. And then how do I use that to start sharing it in thoughtful ways that transform other people's lives. Listen, I just want to say one thing. The, the, the older I get, the more I realize that you have to have a certain amount of money to not have anxiety. That is the truth of the world. And when you are poor and if you have never been poor, you don't under if you've never been poor, you don't understand the daily anxiety that people without money feel, the deep fear. And we have in this country a very false dialog about well bootstrap yourself up you should be fine and it's often said by wealthy people to poor people and it we have got to come to a place i think where everybody has a minimum income so that they can relax psychologically and then manifest all the things they have to give to the culture mm-hmm. but without a minimum level without having to go day to day worrying about feeding your children it's hard to do things that are meaningful and powerful
0: mm. and i think there's a lot to be said about a uh, a population's potential, and that you know when you are able to remove things like constant anxiety and constant backpedaling and trying to climb out of a bucket that you were placed into, uh, there's a you know there's things like you know inherent intelligence and brilliance in our population that can never be tapped into. You know, doing programs like that potentially in some sort of future that would be amazing because we can tap into a potential in our population that is completely un, untapped into right now.
1: Yeah. So look, if you, I just want to say one other thing about this before we go on to the next question. Um, there is a lot of fear in some portions of the American political uh, leaders and in the population that if you establish a minimum income, that people are going to get lazy. And I would offer that the data shows that's not the case. And I want to give a tip of the hat and suggest to the readers that they go to the website of a group called Give Directly. And I have for a long time felt, and I'm going to say something that's going to be um, contentious, that the nonprofit system we've set up is not actually changing the underlying systems. We have been for years giving money to nonprofits, and these systems persist. I'm not saying that we don't need some of the nonprofits, but there it, it is a question in my mind why our current nonprofit charitable system has not transformed. The underlying issues of the problems. We keep doing handouts. we keep doing patchwork. <clears throat> so give directly actually is giving money directly to families in a village. I believe it's in Kenya. And I participate in this. so I want to be transparent. I actually give money to give directly. And this is a group of really smart young people. I think some of them are from MIT and elsewhere. And they had the same question that's been on my mind for 15 years, which is, so what if we just gave money to people so they could transform their lives? And they are doing research. They're being very thoughtful and very thorough. And the data is coming in that it's transformative. They're doing an entire village. They're giving money to a monthly stipend. And it's amazing what people are doing with it. People don't go and buy drugs. Maybe some small percent do, but not the majority. They want to be um, productive. They want to feed their children. They want to build their houses. I believe we could try some pilot programs like that in the United States and see what happens.
0: So I'm being reminded right now of abundance leadership when you talk about this. So I want to um, just mention this. So this is one of your flagship models. Uh, It's a concept that you wrote your PhD dissertation on. We have a week-long retreat here at OPG for executives that totally revolutionizes the way they lead. So... In, in, the, in the conversation of, of you know, a minimum basic income as well as this, uh, this uh, disparity between genders in the workplace, where does the concepts of abundance leadership address these problems of uh, equality and equal opportunity and diversity?
1: Mm-hmm. So I think at the retreat in particular, I'm going to differentiate the retreat and the model. And the model addresses it in just asking leaders to operate from a place of deep abundance and sharing and knowing truly we have enough resources on the planet to solve all of the problems. And that we have enough, more than enough, to save our planet and to move ourselves out of poverty and to have educational parity and income parity, I truly believe that's the case. And the model speaks to having leaders operate from that deep belief. But let me talk about the retreat. A little bit because it is there that people begin to explore their own underlying values so this takes us back to where we started when we talked about how does a leader make an organization open to dialogue and at the retreat leaders explore their own pathway to their belief system and they learn how to have a deeper dialogue about values and pain and emotions and being more fully human in a working space and how to manage that as a leader Without becoming a psychologist, without having people um, say things that are hurtful to an individual, but to be able to have people process their experiences that are related to the workplace and therefore transform the workplace. And we give the leaders the beginnings of that experience
0: there. Now... A lot of our listeners are coming from all sides of this conversation. They may not be owners of businesses, but they may be someone who's experiencing adversity or bias, or they may be unknowingly contributing in some way to that adversity. So for those who may be experiencing it or contributing it, how do you become self-aware? And how do you knowingly contribute in a positive way to a better future for your community, for the people that you go home to every day, and uh, for whatever organization or group that you're a part of?
1: So I think there's two questions in there. One is, how do you become self-aware? And then how do you contribute in your own life in different domains to making change? And I think that question is beautifully sequenced because first we have to become self-aware. Otherwise, we're not even aware that we need to make a change. And the self-awareness is an individual journey. And it starts with, for me, when I'm doing diversity work with groups, is first becoming aware of what your own identities are. What are your own demographics? What does it mean to be, for me, a white person? What does it mean to be a woman? What does it mean to be a white woman? What does it mean to... I came from um, an upper-middle-class family. What does that mean? And what is my experience, both what I do to the world and what I receive from the world in relation to those identities? And that's... To get to that awareness you need a guide of some kind. You need to be either in a workshop, you need people asking questions, you need to be reading. You can be watching videos that raise your consciousness. So simple acts of, I'll, I'll give you an example that used to happen more in my career. If I was leading a group and there were four men and two women in it and we needed notes taken, everybody looked at the women. Mm-hmm. Just becoming aware of that. That sounds simple, especially to get people in a younger generation. They would be more conscious of that because you've had all this training in the schools and in workplaces. But back in my day when I was starting my career, nobody noticed that. It was just normal. So the first awareness is to look at what normal means for different people. Why is it that when we drive through white, wealthy neighborhoods, most people mowing the lawns are Latino? Just to notice that that's the case. Why are so many people who are providing elder care African-American? or latino. Just notice it. Don't judge it. Just first notice it. And then start to ask yourself what elements in the system created that? Do we want that to be the case? W- where do we want to be? And then finding a way to start having dialogue. So that's that's the awareness part. And then you asked about what what can you do? And it's really scary to start to have a dialogue with others about race and gender and others. We're afraid we're going to use the wrong words. We're afraid we're going to be offensive. So creating some safe places to do that and know you are going to make mistakes you are going to be offensive it's it's a long journey to get to a place where you have the language and the awareness to engage in dialogue with others i've been doing diversity work for over 30 years and i still make mistakes i still use the wrong pronouns i might use a demographic label that that person doesn't use for themselves etc so i want to give people permission to make mistakes and know that you can say i'm sorry um in that way. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, if you're managing or leading, go get help. Go ask for experts to come in and help facilitate, to design programs that move it forward. Once you're on that pathway, it's it's not a journey you do in three months. Once you're on that pathway, you're doing it for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're, you're going to be in that dialogue the rest of your life. Mm. And it's a good dialogue. It's a joyful one.
0: And I can, I can also contribute a thought to this doing and having this dialogue is that, when you're entering into a, um, a space and you're trying to make it a safe space with someone who you potentially have uh, contentious or clashing uh, perspectives with, um, to main to establish a point of base values that you can both agree on, mm-hmm. and to move from there. For example, we think that you know people should have what they need. For mm-hmm. example, as a base value, if you can establish that first, then that's an amazing place to begin from when you're continuing to have this conversation. Yeah. For example. Yeah,
1: yeah, very good point, and and sometimes you need help doing that. Mm-hmm. You know, don't don't feel like you have to just go at it alone. I do want to say one other piece to throw in for the individuals and awareness. Uh, often you'll see anger towards others, so whites angry at blacks, the kind of neo-Nazi movement here. Um, you see men scared of women. That fear is, I believe, based on an underlying paradigm that there are not enough resources, that you're coming to get mine, and I don't have enough. And if we had a shift in the underlying system where everyone had enough of what they need in order to be productive, I believe some of that fear would go down. Mm-hmm. And we do have other issues that come up with years and decades of groups racial groups convincing their children and others that other racial groups are dangerous or bad or stupid or whatever. We need to, of course, work on that. And I think if we can get to a place where everyone has a little bit more than what they need, we can relax a little bit psychologically and have a deeper dialogue.
0: Well, let's start building that model together then. I really like that, Laura. I'm all in. (laughs) Thank you so much for your time. And uh, I hope you have a great day.
1: Thank you. Happy to be here.
0: That was my interview with Laura Freebairn Smith, co-founder and partner at Organizational Performance Group. To see Laura speak as a keynote at the Women in Strategy Summit on February 28th in New York City, head over to the innovationenterprise.com summits. One phrase that stuck with me in our interview was Laura's description of organizations as a microcosm of what is possible, and how oftentimes, too often, we put ourselves into a box of limitations. As Laura mentioned, so many of our social and economic problems are centered around the belief that there's not enough to go around. And in order to find pathways to truth and reconciliation, to restorative justice, even to creating a safe place in which everyone can speak their minds with respect and bravery, we must establish an understanding that there's enough for everyone. From the smallest population to the world population, there's an abundance of potential that can be tapped. And that building of bonds, of base values, and shared experience will only open those channels of potential more and more. So here's some homework. I want you to have that conversation you've been practicing to yourself in the shower about an issue you care about and begin with an establishment of shared values. Recognize the power of your words and your identity while showing respect and empathy for the person on the other side of the aisle. I believe that together we have the ability to change the world to save the world and to save ourselves in the process. With that, this is Robert Roach, signing off.